Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Today is February 18th, 2015. We have a fascinating show for you today. We're going to be talking with Nika Beeman. She wrote uh, her first um, memoir, called Misdiagnosed, The Search for Dr. House in 2014. I don't know about about everybody else, but I'm pretty familiar with, with uh, the House uh, TV series. And um, to actually talk to somebody who's actually lived this in real life situations, um, it's going to be a pretty amazing show. So let me bring our special guest on now. Hello, Nika. Good evening. How are you? Wonderful. And it's great for you to be here today. Thank I like you to very start my show me. out. Oh, you're welcome. I like starting my show out by asking my guest how they got on the path that they're on today. Um, you're kind of um, a little different <laughs> in that we kind of we kind of already know the answer to that, um, but. But I think um, you also ought to talk about your work um, outside of this book because it's kind of interesting as well. Certainly. Well, I'm a television news writer. Um, I write uh, news for the local news here in New York, and I've been doing it for, well, I've been working television since I got out of college, so now almost 20 years. Um, I mean, wow. it, is, it is fascinating. In any given day, we write. I can write anything from world politics to uh, to uh, what the groundhog did today. So it certainly, you know, keeps my mind sharp. And my body, as I tell people all the time, my body may fail me, but my mind never has. And so that's always <laughs> it's always a gift. So I get to it every is. day, you know, um, use the skill that I have that hasn't been tampered with uh, to hopefully inform people, entertain people, and enlighten people about things they don't know. And so. My writing career was kind of born as well out of uh, what I do every day. I get the pleasure of being paid to do what I love every single day. Mhm. Mhm. Well, you've written two books, actually. Why don't you talk about your first book, and then we'll we'll get into um, your second book because that's more related to our show. Yeah, I've actually written four. I wrote two mystery novels long before I switched to nonfiction. Oh, really? I wanted to, yeah, I wanted uh, I wanted to write mysteries. I always thought mysteries would be a lot of fun. They're a lot harder to write than I thought. So I wrote those. Oh, uh, those were my first two. At uh, 25, I thought I was getting way too old. and would never actually achieve my dream of writing a book. So I just started. Uh, it took me uh, oh. quite a few years to finish it. 
and I finished Dark Recesses, uh, which was my first mystery book. Uh, the second one, Eyewitness, was sort of based on my work because it's about eyewitness accounts and how they can be wrong. Everybody assumes that people get them wrong because they have biases, but it really is that you don't expect a crime to happen in front of you, so you're just not paying attention to detail. Um, mm-hmm. and so it was, you know, that book was more closely related to my work. Uh, but in 2009, uh, for some reason, there was this big craze on single black women. I think a study had come out and said that uh, single black women were, you know, certainly there were more single black women than married black women. Three-quarters were single as opposed to being married. Um, but mm. that didn't bother me so much. It was that they were upset that uh, the, the perception was that single black women were unhappy, naturally unhappy. And I thought to myself, I have a lot of friends, and I've never had that perception. We sort of live our life and do the things that make us happy with or without an actual spouse. Um, and so I decided that I should probably write a book from the perspective of women who realize that there's more to life than just, you know, sort of that relationship with, you know, another sure. gender or the same gender. You can have very close, intimate relationships with friends, family that make your life very fulfilling. And I, so I didn't want to feel like if they were single, somehow they were missing something or somehow you should give up on your life or you should, uh, um, huh. especially at that time, there were books like, you know, I mean, the rules had been a few years before that, but that year in particular, the year that my book came out, I didn't work this hard just to get married. Steve Harvey's book came out, How to Catch a Husband. Oh. I thought, you know, do you want to catch a husband? Because if you do things to catch him, then you have to maintain it. I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at the startling divorce statistics of 50%, perhaps that's the problem. You have to be happy with yourself before you can find someone else. And so I wrote a book and I got 17 other women to tell me their story. But amazingly, my story was oh. not in it. <laughs> my story was not in it. I, although I was in a long-term relationship, I technically was single. But I didn't want to write about myself. I think I've spent an entire career as well writing about other people, their pain, their plight, their joys, their happiness, but not about myself. I was always allowed to be invisible. Uh-huh. Um, but when my doctor told me, uh, you know, that I might have cancer in 2013, it was, the, you know, it was actually originally in 2012, almost at the end of it, October. Um, it was one of the most startling things to ever happen to me, and I realized that I certainly didn't want to be invisible anymore. I realized that for most of the time that I had been seeing doctors, um, and I had seen 22 in 17 years, that I was invisible to them, and I didn't want anybody mm-hmm. else to... Uh, find themselves, you know, facing, you know, staring down the possibility uh, of death without, you know, at least letting themselves be heard. And so my coworker mm-hmm. said, that's how you really feel. You have got to tell your story because I don't know how this could happen to you. If you do research every day and you pay attention every day, how did you let this happen to you? And I thought, you know oh, what? Wow. You know, they're probably right. I spend more time researching stories about other people, and yet I blindly follow doctors because, I don't know, I think because you think that they know everything, even mm-hmm. though deep down you know that that can't be right. Um, and so I learned so many things, though, over the years. But it also gave me the resolve to actually take my own medical future in my hands and, you know, to realize that without your help, you have nothing. And so I had to, I had to find a solution. It wasn't even on them. I needed to find a solution because I wasn't ready to go. And so that's what I did. And so I decided to write this book, not just tell people, oh, woe is me, this is what happened to me, but tell you there's something on the other side, that this doesn't have mm-hmm. to happen to you, and that you can, you know, you can control, at least in some small way, your medical destiny. And that you can also have hope, because you know what, even though I have a chronic illness, I'm still at work every day, I still have friends, I still have family. I, you know, you, 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 you keep living, you can live with an illness. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to break you. 
Yeah, that's that's really good for I'm sure some of our listeners to hear. Some people get really beat down from chronic illness, and um, they need to know that there's there's something more out there, and hope is number one on the list. Number two is research. <laughs> yeah, you well, know, you also have to cut yourself some slack. You know, I think that people think that because I say I'm like, you know, I'm you know, I'm at peace with it, that you don't have bad days. Everybody has bad days, but it's important to pick sure. yourself back up so that they're not all bad. Listeners, if you've just tuned in, we're talking with uh, my guest, Nika Beeman. She's the author of a memoir called Misdiagnosed, The Search for Dr. House in 2014. So, Nika, let's get into your book. Um, I read the the entire thing, and I was just amazed at your journey. You also have some really good information in there to help guide people. Um, You've got some questionnaires and some really wonderful resources for them as well. How many how many people do you think are misdiagnosed? Well, we actually sort of know. I mean, what we do know is that you know certainly um, there was just a study that came out last April that said you know you know about 20 million people per year are misdiagnosed, and part of that has to do with uh, we go to now drive-by clinics. If you go to one of the outpatient clinics, they the doctor there, unfortunately, kind of has their hands tied. They don't have your whole medical history, and so they're only diagnosing mm-hmm. you on what's happening right then and there. Um, there have been other statistics that talk about the billions of dollars that we spend every year for health care, um, you know, that indicate that certainly a lot more people than that are misdiagnosed every year. Um, but I think the hard part is that a lot of times, unfortunately, we don't know uh, what, you know, what's wrong or that we've been misdiagnosed until you keep searching for the right answer. I know lately mm-hmm. I've been I certainly on my page. I have a page dedicated to my book, and I, and I post articles. There are certainly a lot of celebrities now who are coming out and talking about, um, even Glenn Beck was talking about how long it took to solve his mystery illness. So money isn't really just the reason why people are misdiagnosed. A lot of it is time. A lot of it is you don't fit uh, the quick formula that doctors have. But I find that it's people in every walk of life seem to be, you know, misdiagnosed. And, And most of us, according to that study back in April, are misdiagnosed about things that are considered relatively minor, and so we don't ever follow up, and so it's not uh, something that's really that big a deal. But certainly when uh-huh. it comes to something that can really affect your health long term, it's something we really got to get a handle on. The 20 million to me, even if that's just a drop in the bucket, is way too many people. Oh, way too many. And I wonder if, if that's not going to go up just because um, we're in such a huge transition in the medical field right now with insurance and, um, you know, providers. And, I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, some people are having to switch three insurers all in one year. Wow. And I think that's why it's important now to have a book like this, especially not just mine, but, you know, any resource that you can find that gives you any kind of guidance because I think people need to, again, understand that you have to ask questions. You have to demand that time because when doctors now are forced to sort of, you know, get as many patients as they can to kind of make up the difference so they think in terms mm-hmm. of the money and those things, then you really need in the time that you have with your doctor to ask about the things that are of issue to you, to not let the doctor just guide the appointment, but to also make sure that you get all of your questions answered, that you know what's going on with your body, that you get to look at your test, and that if you don't get the answers you want from that one, that you know that it's okay to go to another one. 
Um, and I think a lot of times we're never told that that's okay because we feel like we're going to offend the first doctor if we ask for a copy of our record. Mm-hmm. And somehow mm-hmm. they'll, they'll mm-hmm. know and they'll be upset with you. Um, so we don't do that. Or mm-hmm. the doctor rushes you through an appointment because you've got a 15-minute slot and you just get up and leave even though whatever is ailing you is still bothering you. Um, and mm-hmm. that is, you know, that's a huge, huge problem. Or we're willing to accept, you know, being over-medicated just so that it goes away but not getting to the root of what the problem is. Um, and yeah. certainly we've seen in the last few years with the prescription drug epidemic that a lot of people are just being over-medicated and sent home as well as opposed to dealing with the underlying issue. And that is something that we're well, also okay it, with. It takes a lot of time to determine what an underlying issue might be. Absolutely. And that's that's and that's one of the, the, the biggest problems. Um, you almost luck out if you happen to go to the right right physician who actually has the education on your particular situation. Well, we have a lot of specialists out there, but if you, if you don't even know what your diagnosis is, you can't get right. to that specialist. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's, that's kind of what true. happened to you. That's kind right, of what happened because, to you all those years. Right, because it wasn't that I wasn't being treated. I was being treated for whatever was going wrong at the time. But, you know, when you go to, mm-hmm. you know, when you guys, they call theologists, when you go to the specialist, if you go to the gastroenterologist, he's only looking at your gastrointestinal tract. If you go to the rheumatologist, he's mostly looking at your joints. If you're going to, and so I had a lot of doctors, but, you know, I went to the neurologist when they had the strokes, and he's just looking at my brain. He's not looking at, you know, maybe it wasn't just a clot that threw that off. Maybe there's some sort of inflammation, and, you know, her brain, you know, her brain is inflamed or, you know, or her, you know, her, you know, and then that's what's constricting her blood vessels. It, it's, you know, everybody's looking at their individual parts. And since I was not mm-hmm. aware of any, at that time, any condition that could encompass all of those different things, I thought, well, then they're right. Then I'll let him fix this part. I'll let this person fix that part. Um, and, and, you know, nobody's really looking at the whole picture. But, again, part of that is also if you don't have a complete medical record. I never thought as well to mention some of the other things going wrong in my body because I thought that's outside of their area. If I went to the gastroenterologist, uh-huh. I never mentioned oh, that, by the way, I saw a neurologist laugh. What does he care? So a lot of times we actually are our own worst enemies because we feel like we don't need to share some of that information. Um, but you do. I mean, even if you have to tell it to 20 million people, that's okay. Um, but in mm-hmm. terms of not being diagnosed, because that's a great problem. Yeah, well, if you don't have a diagnosis, it's very difficult to get help. But there are places, and, you know, that's the thing that, I, you know, I certainly didn't know for a long time, that, you know, the National Institute of Health will help you if you don't know what your diagnosis is. And if they agree to take your case, they will treat you most times for free. I didn't realize that you could even contact them to get assistance. Oh, that there was oh, a nasty, that I didn't there's know an that. Office, yeah, there's an office of rare diseases as well. There's an office of rare diseases really? as well that will allow you, if you have been undiagnosed for a specific period of time, and they actually have a website, uh, you can send them a copy of your records with your doctor's approval, with a note from your doctor, and they will attempt to try to di- diagnose what's wrong with you. They have a board of people who will look over your records and try to figure it out. Oh, my gosh. And That's kind of like Mayo Clinic. Right. It's like they Mayo don't Clinic. charge you for that either. But, you know, so we didn't know there was... Yeah an alternative to Mayo Clinic. Right, and that's the problem. Everybody goes, oh, go there. So if, unfortunately, they're overburdened or they can't take your case, then people wait or don't do anything at all. But there are other places that absolutely will help you. 
that absolutely mm-hmm. will help you. I, I'm not exactly sure why doctors don't tell you these places exist, but, you know, they certainly do. And like I said, most of them will help you for free. And so money is not uh, the issue that you have to worry about in terms of getting to see these people. It's collecting your records, having the information, and, you know, and getting a letter from your doctor to send to them. And you Did you do that? Get help. I did not need to do that. Actually, what I chose to do was, like you said, I said, do I have the right doctors with the right training to figure this out? And I thought, obviously not, because all of these years they let it get this far, and now they think I have lymphoma. This is insane. I said, well, I live in New York, one of the greatest medical communities in the world. I've got to be able to figure this out. So what Mm -hmm. I decided to do was look up the Castleman Guide to the Best Doctors in New York and USA U.S. News and World Reports, who are the best doctors? And I went through all of it and compared all of these periodicals and tried to figure out who they rated as the best doctors year after year after year. And once I had that, I had a list of five people, and I said, okay, which ones of these doctors may deal with the things that I know that I have in common in all of my illnesses? And one of the things I knew that was in common was that everything was inflamed. Okay, so everything is getting swollen for some reason, but this doesn't make Mm -hmm. any sense because otherwise I'm perfectly normal. So I said, well, that sounds like it's a rheumatologist. So I need the best rheumatologist that exists in New York City. That's what I need. And so I went to the first guy who I thought would be great. I said, and, you know, he actually nicknames himself, you know, that he's a diagnostician. I said, ah, what better than a guy who, you know, specializes in diagnosing people? This is my doctor house. This has got to be the <laughs> And I went there and he said, yeah, it sounds to me like you may have some inflammation, but you're not that sick. So, and I stood up and I thought to myself, you know what, that's so to him, but it's my life. Uh-huh, so he's uh-huh. not the one for me. Because anybody who takes the fact that I come here and, and tell you that my health has been bothering me for 17 years and I'm not even 40 and thinks that that's okay, not the right guy for me. So I went to the next doctor on the list. And I said, before I go to her, let me get all the files that I have on everything that's happened to me in the last few years and see if she can figure this out. So when I called her office, mm-hmm. I said, send it over before you get here. I said, okay, they're off to a good start. They actually want to see this. They actually want to really actually look at this and try to figure it out. Wonderful. And I sent it to her, and I walked into her office for the first appointment, and I sat down, and within 10 minutes of sitting down after she examined it, she said, I think I know what you have. Jeez. And I thought she was nuts. Yeah, I, I, after you go be. through I, that. Yeah, after you go through that, that process, you know, um, I'm a cancer survivor. And I was diagnosed with two different cancers at the same time. And so I did a methodical um, process where I just treated one at a time. And um, by the time I found a physician who could treat the second cancer, which was stage four by that time, and and he told me that he had a cure for me, my response was just like yours. I looked at him and I said to him, I, I literally said this, who are you, God? <laughs> I thought I, I, she's got to be kidding. I, I, you know, I, I, I could, I absolutely couldn't believe it. And she said, "You're not going to know what it is because it's very rare. Just got a re- recently got named, but this is what it is. I'm going to write it down. We're going to do some blood tests, and I'm going to confirm it." I said, "You know what? Do your blood test because you're going to have to prove it to me. I need to see this. You show me how uh-huh. it shows up." And we're good. Uh-huh. I was like, and we're good. And that's exactly what she did. She shows me these blood tests, and I look at I look at this thing, and I go, hey, the range is between here and here. Wait, I'm almost three times that. That can't be right. Well, what the heck wow. causes that? Well, it sounds like she's actually showing me something. 
And, you know, the mm-hmm. second I had a name, like you said, the world seems to open up. It's like the sky opens up. And I look and I go, okay, IgG4 related systemic disease. What the heck is that? Nobody's ever heard of this, including, you know, people mm-hmm. I work with, the medical doctor at my station. Everybody's like, mm-hmm. I put it into Google, and sure enough, Mass General Hospital in, in Boston, the only hospital in the country that has an entire division dedicated to treating people with IgG4-related systemic Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Here's the best part. I used to live in Boston. I went to college in Boston. When I got sick, I was in Boston and didn't know that it was down the street. I had no idea. Oh. How unfortunate. I went to every other hospital, Brigham and Women's, Harvard, you name it. I went to every mm-hmm. other hospital except for Mass General. I had no way to know that. Ugh. Seventeen years later, I headed back to Boston so that I could meet them and figure out what I could do. Jeez. Well, what what do you think people should do if they think that they've been misdiagnosed um, outside of um, contacting certain agencies? Like you said, if if you believe that your doctor really doesn't know what's going on with you, the first thing you should do really is, first, you need to collect all your medical records. Without them, you're almost, you know, you're almost handicapped. Nobody else can really help you. They can listen to your story. They can kind of try to figure it out. But there are actual tests that I'm sure you've had done, blood tests, x-rays, scans, that may actually show them something that's been missed. I mean, unfortunately, since I work in news, I send stories every day about how one radiologist reads an x-ray and says there's nothing there, and the next one says, yes, there is. So all of those things truly are important. Oh, yeah. Something could have been missed along the way. Um, you know, yeah. like I said, the irregularities in my blood were, I had regular blood tests, and they always turned out normal. But my rheumatologist did, you know, autoimmune disease blood test, and sure enough, there it was. And so it's Mm -hmm. something that simple, but they have to have that information. So you need a complete medical record. You need to lay to do research about the doctors you want to go to. I mean, for me, the key was finding some of the best doctors who have seen other rare cases and going, you know what, I must have something that's not normal because otherwise somebody would have found it. Um, so doing that, you know, again, also I think, you know, very much saves my life. But never stop going. You know, I think that, you know, we mm-hmm. all get discouraged that when the doctor tells you either there's nothing wrong or this should be it and you don't feel any better, a lot of times we give up. We go, you know what, mm-hmm. I don't know what's wrong with me. They don't know what's wrong with me. Either there's nothing wrong with me or I'm just, you know, I'm losing my mind or they'll never find it. But you can't give up because without your help you have nothing and you have to fight for it as you would anything else. And so even if it takes you going to doctor after doctor, ask your friends what doctors they go to. I was like, call your local TV station, ask their television doctor who they recommend. There are lots of, you know, there are lots of resources. You just have to, you know, you just have to keep looking around until you find them. And he said, listen to the radio. You'll find shows like yours, and you'll find other people or just that one nugget that clicks with you and goes, you know what, I do have information mm-hmm. in all of my organs. That's odd. Maybe I have that. You never know when you're mm-hmm. going to hear it. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's really, really good advice. I I find it fascinating that of all the blood tests that you had, that they never checked your immunoglobulins. Um, uh, they did, but they checked for common diseases or diseases they thought were associated with black people. They thought I must have had sickle cell, I must have had mono, I must have rheumatoid arthritis, I must have MS. 
They looked for all of those key markers, but they never looked at the IG enzyme. They never looked at them. They never Hmm. did a panel of them. Um, They never, you know, I I had never seen them. I had looked at blood tests before, and they had never gone that far with it. They had never looked at, you know, they had never looked at some of those, and I thought, thought, yeah, something that simple could have changed it years ago. Mm -hmm. And yet they Mm -hmm. never looked. Um, But, I, you know, I didn't know to tell them to look. And they looked for the, again, doctors, like I said, I don't think they were malicious. I think they looked for the most common thing. Sure. And then they looked for the next common thing. And the next common thing was if she doesn't have something very common, she must have something like, yeah, like an autoimmune disease, which is kind of harder to find. So when I didn't have one of the common autoimmune diseases, then it became, I, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it is one of those, but it's not that bad. Maybe that's why your, you know, your, you know, your rheumatoid factor isn't that high. It's just not that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of looking somewhere else. Because, again, I think also there's a perception that, you look and present yourself a certain way. I think I found also when I told doctors that I still went to work, you said you've read the book, despite everything that I went through, I went to work. I never lost my job. I still went to work as many days as I possibly could. I've always held the same job. I've, you know, they said I've always, you know, done the same thing. And when I came in, I don't think that I spent a lot of time complaining. And so when you come in, Mm -hmm. if you're not, you know, complaining or demanding answers or saying, I can't work anymore, you have to find this, they don't think it's that bad. And so it's not really sort of an emergency that they solve it. Whereas, as I said, it's not that it wasn't affecting me. I guess I just was never, I'm just not that kind of person that I realized that I should have been saying, no, you've got to help me. This is, you know, this is really affecting my everyday life. Uh So they, they, you know, without doing that, I, I found even like, when I first started seeing my doctor, I would go to see her assistant when I would go to sign in, and she'd be like, so you're disabled? I was like, not at all. And she said, what? I was like, not mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Not if I can help it. Mm-hmm. And they assume that you must be disabled. <laughs> if you're seeing the doctor on that level, you must be disabled. I was like, not if I can help it. I've got to keep mm-hmm. fighting as long as I can. Well, you and know, you're, you're, like, a cla- you're a classic example of the mind-body. Um, yeah, I think, there's, I think there's a lot mind to that body, as well. I think. Um, yeah. That if you don't surrender, if you if you decide that you can do a little bit better than you, than you can, like I said, there are days where I I literally say you, you've got to get up now, you've got to get up. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, it's gonna take me ten extra minutes today, but I got to get up. If I can get mm-hmm. there, I can get there. If I can't stay all day, I can always come home, but I've got to at least try. Um, mm-hmm. And like I said, and, and that was you know also you know I learned with certain conditions you're supposed to present in a certain way. Um, if you weren't for, you know they have classic symptoms. If you're not overweight, if you weren't you know, having certain things that they didn't really know to look for them. I mean, they're kind of checking off a checklist. And if you don't, you know, I think that's why I loved the show Dr. House. I mean, I faced the character looking for this character because I thought he was the same. All of these people usually came to that fictional show had been other places and nobody could figure this out because they didn't appear classically the way whatever illness it was was supposed to appear. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's still sad that in a sense we don't really have a lot of centers and places for people to go to get diagnosed because a lot of people could be saved or at least have a better quality of life if they could just figure out what was going what's going on and get some sort of help. Yeah, I don't I don't know what um attributes a physician would need to have to be a doctor house. Right. In other Which words, how, how think it was world opposite of what he had. Uh-huh. Like compassion. Like, how, how do they how do they get to that level? Are they yeah, you know um, are they incredible readers? Do they have backgrounds in research? What is it? 
you know, I know from my doctor, she said she constantly reads. Um, she's constantly mm-hmm. inquisitive. Um, she never mm-hmm. assumes that the person is, you know, crazy, but there really is something mm-hmm. there. It just has to be found. Mm-hmm. I think I found the doctors that seem to suit me well are ones who immediately going in going, okay, I don't know what it is, but we're going to find it. You know, whatever yeah. it is, we're going to figure this out, and we're going to figure it out together. And they sort of, you know, sort of take it on. I mean, you know, I sort of people. I guess it's sad that I have like my doctor calls on my cell phone and her her name pops up. Because um, we actually have, you know, today I called her about something totally totally different. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm going to the bone center, but I need to ask you something else. And then she called me, or we emailed. Um, I think technology mm-hmm. has certainly mm-hmm. helped so that you're in touch and you can say, you know, this happened today. Sure. Is that supposed to happen in the course of this condition or no? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I think, yeah, like I said, it's a willingness to listen, to understand, to not rush you out the door, to really pay attention to even the most minor thing that you say, and to take it at its face value that maybe there really is something here. Yeah. I find and, that a lot of you know, doctors think you're overreacting. Yeah. And, and, you know, something else, too, when it comes to chronic illness, um, a lot of it has to do with timing. Um, and what I mean by that is you may be going to a physician for many, many years um, and they don't have an answer. And then ultimately they come up with one. Right. Um, and that's all timing. Or, you know, yeah. they come, they, uh, pharmaceuticals come out with a new life-saving drug. Absolutely. You just happen to be able to uh, be around long enough to take advantage of it. So, Absolutely. There's I mean, so I'm many variables. Now. I'm better now than I was in my 20s. There were drugs, but I was pretty much a functional zombie. I went to sleep in my 20s before 9 o'clock every day. I got to work, but barely got home because... The drugs that they had were trained to do so many different things. I mean, now they've come up with so many other drugs that are kinder, gentler to your body that, you know, that were most of my drugs were prescribed for other things, and they, by happenstance, realized they work for these people too. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, it's, mm-hmm. as long as you wait around long enough, you'll find the solutions. But, like you said, the other thing is to read yourself. I know that, like with my primary care physician, the long suffering one, he's the only doctor I think I've had the entire you know, 15 years at least. Um, that you know that they read up on the condition, that they learn as much as they can about it along with you, mm-hmm. so that you don't mm-hmm. feel like you're sort of out there by yourself. You know, this drug might work. Maybe we should try this. Um, you mm-hmm. know, always like I said, my primary care physician. I know for a lot of plans, people need referrals, and he has always been willing to say, "Okay, that doctor didn't find it. Let me send you to somebody else." Yeah, if you can find a good primary care physician, that's half the battle. But it's Absolutely. got to be one. That that reads a lot. That goes to yeah. a lot of conferences. That really stays up on on the latest and the greatest, and has a network of people that right. they can um, that they can get supportive information from as well. And and don't be afraid to ask your doctor if that's the case. Does he read a lot of the medical journals? Does he like you said? Does he have a resource of people? If he can't solve it, do you have? referrals that you like to give people. Are there other doctors you mm-hmm. work with? Um, a lot of my doctors mm-hmm. are in a, the same medical group, and so I know that when I go to the, not only the medical group, but for me, I'm lucky in New York, they're also affiliated with the hospital, which is usually next door. So mm-hmm. I have the mm-hmm. benefit of going, okay, if he doesn't know, well, i got the whole department next door in case this doesn't work out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So why don't you talk a little bit about what the most common misconceptions are, um, about people that have chronic illnesses that they're dealing with day in, day out? 
I think, you know, the thing that I, I hear the most from other people is that people go, you don't look sick. And like you said, I, I go to work every day, and ah, a lot of my coworkers, they go, you don't look, you don't look sick. sick. And I said, what does that mm-hmm. look like? Do you know what somebody who mm-hmm. has my condition looks like? And I think mm-hmm. what they mean is they expect you to, again, have this sort of sullen um, way about you that you're sad or feel sorry mm-hmm. for yourself because you were just built this way. As I tell them, I was like, this is this is the hand that I was dealt. I'm going to play it the best way I can. Um, so I'm not going to spend every day being sad about it. There's certainly days I'm upset about it, but I'm not going to hang my head. I'm not going to ask other people for help constantly. They expect that you're going to ask them for help constantly. Um, you know, I find that also is something they expect that you're, you know, going to constantly ask them to do something for you or to help them out in some way. Um, mm-hmm. I think they also, you know, I think the the other thing is that they expect that they can't have a conversation with you that doesn't revolve around your health. I think since I, you know, since a lot of the people I know have been aware that I've been sick, they always start off a conversation with, "How are you?" But it's not that they're just asking, "How are you?" They kind of say it slow and low, as if somehow I'm mentally impaired in some way. I think like, I'm the same person that I was yesterday. You can talk to me normal. You know, I can still talk about the boat show and fashion week. You don't always have to talk to me about what did my doctor say today. Uh-huh. Oh, you want to be treated like as if you're a whole complete A normal person. Right, yeah. Some yeah. days I'm going to want to talk about my health. But every day mm-hmm. I want, don't want to focus on the fact that, you know, maybe this thing is killing me. I don't need to focus on that every day. I need to live. Right. And they forget that a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I had a, a lot of really close friends that didn't live near me. I mean, they were out of state, pretty far away. And wow. um, we re- we didn't talk that often anyway. They had no idea about my illness. And the reason I did that was because when I um, did have the opportunity to talk with them, I didn't want to have a friend that I had to talk to about that. Right, right. I have plenty of other friends that were well aware of it. And so right. it's kind of like I had this other network of people that I could call and have a happy conversation with. <laughs> You know, but did you find that people were ang- upset when they found out and said, you know, she kept it a secret? Because I found a lot of people thought that me not mentioning my illness for so long was, oh, you're keeping secrets. And I thought, that's odd. Well, uh, I did get that reaction. Of course I got that reaction. I knew I would get that reaction. And my reply <laughs> to them my re- reply to them was what I just said said to you. I right. needed... I need a network of people that I could talk with that didn't know about it so that I could have a happy day. Right. So if if finding out now you're having an unhappy day, I'm sorry. But be happy because I'm going to be around a long time. <laughs> I think that would be going anywhere anytime soon. Um, there will be many more things for you to take on. Exactly. Yeah, I I do find that I I find, you know, that that was one of the things that they ended up apologizing for not telling people that I was sick because they wanted to show that they cared. I think, but you did without even knowing it. And, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. just by being there and just being yourself and treating me like normal, that was absolutely it because I had people forcing tea down my throat. I didn't need that every day. I'm good. Right. And, and And I think also that element for me was I didn't want anyone feeling sorry for me. Because yes. I didn't feel sorry for me. Absolutely. I had a, a real positive attitude about it. It was just something I was going to have to take care of and figure it out. And I never, ever, the, the thought never crossed my mind that I wasn't going to figure it out. Yes, right. There was right. enough I, I, available I, out there to, to do that. 
And yes. so I didn't want their pity, and I told them that too. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's you know that's you know that's the tough part. But you know, I had so many people say, "Did you ever wonder why you?" I was like, "No, I always wondered why not me." And I figured, you know, it's the luck of the draw. But it, you know, I said this and I, said, I always laugh because my mother said the funniest thing because they have two brothers who are perfectly healthy. Mm-hmm. They said they never so much as even get a cold. And my, you know, one day my mother looked at me and I thought, "Is this taking a toll on my parents?" Because this has been long for them too. Um, and my mother said to me, you know, I'm sort of glad this happened, not that it happened to you, but that it happened to you. And I said, why is that? Because if it happened to one of the boys, oh, my gosh, they would have never been able to take it. They probably would have given up by now. Oh, uh, yeah, Maybe that's it. Maybe it is better that it happened to me because I'm different than them. Uh, you know, it's, wow. Yeah, interesting. Right. That's interesting from a mother, you know, perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and, and that actually helped me immensely because I thought, you know what, she's right. Maybe there is something about me that made it that it was okay that it happened to me. Because although mm-hmm. I have my days, they're just days. I, mm-hmm. I know that I have to keep going. There's nothing in me that ever, I told you, no, there was never a day, even when they said, you know, you could have died today. There was never a day where I thought, this is my day. Mm-hmm. And as long as I didn't wake up with the feeling that today was my day, I was okay. Yeah. I also had physicians that were very, that had very positive attitudes about life. And not one of them ever said to me, at, when I was at stage four, never said to me, you're dying. Never. Wonderful. Never ever said that to me. It was never in their vocabulary. You know, they'd, they'd go, oh, your blood's getting a little out of control, or mm, you've been losing a bit of weight here, you know, yes. <laughs> but, but never that. And so that was a good thing because it didn't put it into my head. Right. No, my head, neck, and throat surgeon for my lymphoma. I chose people. I said he had the best line. I said I loved him because he did three of my three of my lymph node biopsies. Um, actually, unfortunately, in two years he did three of them. Now, so he worked hard. He worked really hard. Uh, but I said this. I said you know after the second one I had gotten engaged, and he said to me, he said, hey, just promise me that I'll get to dance at your wedding. And so he said, as long as you don't leave me looking like Frankenstein, we're good. And so we used to tell jokes all the time. I said we used to tell jokes all the time. And you know he was just you know he's like I never get invited to. No, do the weddings. I was like, you don't? He said, no, it's usually funerals. I'm sick of those. I was like, me too. I was like, oh, when I get married, you'll be there. You'll be there. We're good. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I, well, I know, absolutely I know that... kept, kept the doctors I loved. Oh, gosh, that's great. <laughs> well, I know that you were um, single through a lot of this, and um, – and you were dating. Mm-hmm. How how did that work out for you? You know, as the decision, you know, again, I've been one of the luckiest people on the planet, which sounds kind of ironic, given all the things I've been through, but I constantly say I was so fortunate. I was always blessed in that even though I dated people, some of them were not right for me, they were right for me at the time because, you know, I, I dated one guy for 10 years through some of this, and, you know, he had Ten issues. Years. He wow. liked other women. He liked other women. That was a problem. Um, but the only problem we didn't have is that whenever I was sick, I was always first. If I was sick and I needed something, I can honestly say there was never a time that he didn't do uh-huh. what I needed or provide what I needed, including when I had, you know, stroke back-to-back and carrying me up and down. I have a townhouse, unfortunately for me. My favorite line is, who let me wow. buy a house upstairs? That was smart. Um, so a lot of times I can't walk around <laughs> here, but he would actually carry me up and down the stairs. Well, I'm five foot ten. 
and at that point, I think I was 180 pounds. Oh, my pounds. gosh. Not the lightest or smallest oh girl in the world. And he would carry me up and down wow. the stairs so that I could, you know, so that I could get up and down the stairs every day because at that point when I had the stroke, at, at some point I, I could barely see and I could barely hear. And so he would carry me down to what we called my island. That's and he would un- set up my little sofa and bring me food and drinks and there's a bathroom on the first floor and I was all set for the day. Um, so, I, oh. you know, I, I was always fortunate. And when I met my fiancé, I must say I was equally fortunate. I mean, I met him and so he said, I, you know, I was jingling like a janitor with a lot of keys. It sounded like, and he said, oh, what's all that noise? I said, oh, they're not keys, they're the pills. And, you know, and so he took that well. I was like, he took that well as a pill. And so I just explained to him before we started dating that, yeah, uh-huh. I have this thing. Um, and I wasn't sure that he would take it well. But, you know, he he, uh-huh. he, he really adjusted. I, I found that people sort of adjust to their circumstances. I don't know that any of them were ever happy about it. I'd have to ask them. But I'm also lucky yeah. in that I tell people, I said, I got sick in college and I had dated my uh, ex then for four years, four and a half years. I'm a, long, I'm a serial dater. Uh, <laughs> a serial monogamous. <laughs> well, um, he was great as well. Um, and I, I tell people, I said, you know, I'm the only person I know who's actually still friends with all of their exes and they all take care of me. And if I'm sick, they all come to take care of me and pitch in. Oh, um, my gosh. And I am, you know, so I am fortunate that even still after all of these years, if I say I'm sick, they're like, do you need something? Do you need me to come? Do you need me to do this? Um, and my fiancé, really? uh, it's just like a club. It just becomes a club because we all need help. So my fiancé adjusted to their, their presence um, and their assistance uh-huh. um, because I realize sometimes Isn't it takes a village phenomenal? to get Nika to work. <laughs> sometimes it takes a village to get Nika to work. So yeah. It's just yeah. It's, it's difficult. Um, and yeah, and he, and you know they all adjusted, and their fiance has a little boy who's nine. And I'll tell you, this little boy, you know, if you know, I mean, I told you that that was the thing I feared that you know I don't have any children. Yeah. So to have somebody mm-hmm. who has a child, I thought, how are children going to take this? Are you going to worry all the time? He, he used to, you know, at, at some point he said, it was, I had to laugh because one day he finally said, he said, oh, you're not feeling well today? He said, no, I'm not, honey. He said, oh, why don't you take one of your pills? They usually fix you up. I said, see, he's getting better. He's getting used to. It's used to make an app. That's so funny. <laughs> gosh. Oh my gosh. So, so I am I'm, I am blessed and fortunate that most of the dudes I'm just a kind of a blunt person, so I just always said up front, by the way, here's my deal. Yeah. Um and, yeah. and, and they were you know, they, they rode the roller coaster and everybody was okay. And, uh, so I've been really fortunate that that was never an issue for me because I never felt the need to hide it. Mhm. Mhm. Well, I believe that we all have our angels around us, and they do come when the need is at the highest level. They really do. Absolutely. How important was your faith in recovering from all of this? I tell people all the time. I, you know, I may not be the best Catholic, but I'm not exactly a heathen either. I, you know, went to Catholic college and I sang in choir all four years, so I thought I perhaps earned a few points there. But um, you know, I, you know, I tell people I said I've always been a person of faith, organized religion, and I we don't exactly get along. But um, no, I always believed there yeah. had to be something greater. Um, like I said, everything that happened, even from the first crazy story in the book, and you know, trying to finally decided to do something reckless and almost dying, I realized. 
that I didn't die because I could have picked some strange guy someday who would have kicked me out of his house or not cared that I was sick, but I picked the right one, and I think there was a reason. It wasn't my choice, mm-hmm. um, but there was a reason because my mm-hmm. ex had asked me out many times before that day, but I chose that day, and that day he saved my life. And so I, I wow. can say that, you know, I have been um, somebody. Sales keep saying it's not my time to go yet. Somebody keeps letting me uh, spend a little bit more mm-hmm. time here. Um, so, yeah, I know. I, I truly believe that, that believing that there was something greater, like you said, listening for that voice that says today is my day. Is it my day? Mm-hmm. Can I can I get through this and, and not, you know, getting the wrong answer, or at least what I would think is the wrong answer. I, I always knew that, I always believed that there's something that, that keeps me going that's greater than myself. Because I've certainly had days where I thought it's easier to give up. It'll be easier on my family if I just give up. Financially, mm-hmm. it's devastating to be chronically ill. It is financially mm-hmm. just, yeah, I don't care how much you make, it's it's a lot of money out of pocket. Um, um, but thank God for Obamacare that caps some of that stuff now. But, uh, yeah, it was, you know, just ridiculous. It said it was $250 a month for my medication, and I have a job in insurance. I can't imagine mm-hmm. what people who didn't have that had. Mm-hmm. So, but somehow every month I came up with it. So I'll tell you, I, I said, this, you know, if you if you don't believe, you know, I, I, whatever you want to call it, I do think that there is some greater force out there that keeps us going. And for me, that, you know, I certainly do have faith. I certainly do believe. I certainly said my prayers every time. I got a little scared, and it calmed me. It provided me with some comfort. And if that's what gets you through, I say take it. Like I said, you know, but I also had people here on earth, you know, family and friends, and whether they were a gift mm-hmm. from somebody else or not, those relationships helped me to keep going as well. Well, you're an inspiration to us all. You really are. And um, listeners, you should really try and pick up a copy of her book, Misdiagnosed, The Search for Dr. House in 214. Uh, If you know of anyone who's having a lot of health issues and they haven't received a diagnosis yet. Well, we're running out of time. Um, Nika, do you want to let the listeners know where they can get your book and tell them about your website? Oh, sure. Well, actually, the website actually is just my name. It's NikaBeeman.com, which is N-I-K-A-B-E-A-M-O-N.com, and you can keep up with my blog, and it updates information about the book. And certainly, you can also provide your own testimonials if you want to inspire other people who may read the blog. Certainly, leave your own testimonials, because I'd love to hear from other people as well. There's also a Facebook group for the book, Misdiagnosed, a search for Dr. House, if you'd like to join. There are 1,600 people on there talking about their illness, um, and updates about the book. So certainly there's a community out there for you that can help you. Um, as for the book, it's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords. It's in every form, including electronic forms that I don't know how to use. But if you do, you can go right ahead and buy it that way. I prefer the old-fashioned paper book copy, so it's certainly available that way as well. But, of course, the e-copies are more more economical. So I get it. I get it. But uh, yeah, you you can you can get it. You know, you can get the the book uh, just about anywhere. Booksellers online, um, all of them sell it. Um, so you can get it online. But certainly, you know, look on Facebook or anywhere else, and and you'll probably find me. I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it. You've got to have all the social media these days. So that's that's where I am. <laughs> oh well, thank you, Nika Beeman, for being with us today, uh, listeners. If you weren't able to hear the entire broadcast, it will be on iTunes as a podcast, and you can also find it on the um, website, Blog Talk Radio, Health Media Now. 
Thank you, Nika. It was wonderful talking with you, and take care. Same to you. Good health to you as well. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, listeners, um, please join us again next Wednesday at the same time. We're going to have another wonderful guest with a lot of great information. As always, be well, take care. Bye-bye for now. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at KnowledgeWorksPub.com. Be sure to visit GotCancerNowWhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? Listeners, we just want to remind you that this radio show is based on the opinions of Denise and her guest. It's not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional, and it's not intended as medical advice. We're sharing knowledge and information within our community. We encourage you to make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified healthcare professional of your choice. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration.